so we're uh, we're amped. We're 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 off to the races. So here we are. Uh, it's uh, it's November fourth. We've all made it to November fourth. We're back. Uh, Terry and I are back for this this week in higher ed, and we're delighted to be joined by the president of University Partnership. I got it wrong, Brandon. What you're the Brandon Bastid, everyone. Brandon Bastid, you are. Uh, <laughs> A leader, a thought leader at Kaplan, a uh, lot of uh, great articles in LinkedIn. But uh, can you introduce yourself, Brandon, for folks who may not already know you? Yeah, definitely. So I'm uh, president of University Partners and head of Learn Work Innovation at Kaplan, and uh, uh, spent uh, about seven years before my time at Kaplan at Gallup as the head of education and workforce development there, and uh, and before that as an ed tech entrepreneur. Uh, focused around online courses around things like alcohol abuse and sexual assault prevention and uh, fun fun topics like that. So I've mm -hmm. had a career in higher ed, but uh, several different uh, different versions of it. Right. And then in addition to that, there's also a work-learn dimension to what you're looking at as well. So can you explain a little bit about what that is? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the research that I was involved with at, at Gallup was really at the intersection of uh, of education and work, right? And um, and and so that's been a continuation of the work that I've been doing from a Kaplan perspective, where uh, a lot of what Kaplan has done is is you know evolving pretty quickly into a work prep company. I mean, people know us for test prep historically. You know, we've launched a number of innovations this year uh, that that are really around helping universities improve the work readiness of students. But we also do a lot of work with employers all over the globe. And of course, you know, what's happening here is ultimately, I think where we're headed, this is my vision of the future, is that it will be difficult for us to tell the difference between a school and a place of work. Because essentially what's gonna be happening in both of those venues is lots of hands-on work integrated learning, right? Mm -hmm. Like real work and, and learning at the same time. And so, both employers and schools, right, writ large, are struggling with this. So I'm spending a lot of my time thinking about that space, right, where, where right now we've got handoffs and gaps mm -hmm. between schools and universities, universities and employers, and looking at opportunities to kind of blend those in really productive ways. So that's mm -hmm. the essence of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. And I'm curious what you think of the what's happening at ASU these days with Michael Crow and his the partnerships they've created and and uh, how that's playing out in some of the, you know, I think Purdue is also pursuing some of these kinds of relationships and kind of integrating higher ed into work. Um, and yeah, I, and I also agree with Keel, you know, that I actually am trying to work at that intersection of K through 12 and, and higher ed and, and um, I'm hopefully going to be thinking about that more in the coming year. So just anyway, there are lots of thoughts there. Yeah. <laughs> Well, there's, I mean, to your point, Terry, there's, you know, there's innovative leaders and, and therefore institutions, right? I think it's the innovative leaders that, that pull their institutions that way, as opposed to this idea that there's an innovative institution. In some cases, I do think it's become, you know, kind of a cultural, you know, norm at a place like ASU to embrace innovation, right? But, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of credit to Michael Crow for, for ushering that era in. You know, look, they were one of the ones that led off what what is now called the education as a benefits movement with their Starbucks partnership years right. ago. And right. you know, now we've seen, you know, an explosion, you know, compared to where we were uh, previously and large employers embracing university partnerships to offer degrees and other non-degree education to their employees. Right. Um, even in this kind of recessionary time frame uh, during the pandemic, 
you know, most of the employers are sticking with those programs. I think they're here to stay. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, the big trend over the last year has been not just the, you know, universities moving into partnerships with employers around degree programs, but, you know, the only growth in higher education right now is in non-degree education. You know, mm -hmm. you look at degree-seeking enrollments in U.S. higher education, it's declined mm -hmm. now for 10 consecutive years. Right. We have 2.5 million fewer students enrolled today than we did at our peak. And But if you look at the growth of things like universities offering short courses, certificates, industry-recognized credentials, like if you say, what's growing in higher ed? That's growing in higher ed. So there's this irony, right, that these institutions that have been known for offering these precious things we call degrees their growth is actually in non-degree education for the mm -hmm. foreseeable future. Yeah, mm -hmm. certificates. And there, there's an article that I, I just posted in the chat here uh, that Brandon, by the way, Brandon, uh, you know, as we mentioned uh, at the top, great follow on LinkedIn. He does a lot of writing for Forbes. Uh, you, he also does a, a, a webinar series, very livecast, very similar to this on Thursdays at two, Brandon. Is that right? Yeah, you got it. Thanks. And, and yeah. nothing could be similar to this, right? You guys are <laughs> one and only and unique. Often, often imitated, never duplicated. I don't know about that, but uh, but definitely, uh, you know, we're out there doing our thing. But uh, but the the idea that um, that the credential uh, is sort of the end all be all of the undergraduate experience. Uh, we did want to tie. By the way, thanks everyone for showing up. We know everyone's probably a little shook by just the election craziness and the craziness of 2020. So thanks everyone uh, for being here. Thank you to Brandon and uh, Terry for jumping right in. We're like five minutes in and I feel like we're at the equivalent <laughs> of 25 minutes in in terms of our level of engagement. So thanks for bringing the A-game to uh, former Division One track athletes uh on the on, and, and then me i was good at math i was very good at math as, as, an, under, as an undergraduate but uh but, but Brandon, off to a fast start man yeah, yeah it's diversity yeah exactly we're running yeah. we're running but uh <laughs> but uh can you talk a little bit about that article and it's based on there's a book that you reference in there that, that you just uh, turned me on to that's really interesting uh tyranny of merit uh i think uh, we wanted to talk about that in particular because we do think there's some connections between that and the the way the electorate is shaping up and the way we're kind of thinking about some of the opportunities around education. So uh, so does that make sense, Brandon? Can you pick up from there? Yeah, look, any, anybody who's listening, uh, if you haven't yet read The Tyranny of Merit by Michael Sandel, I highly recommend it. Education and specifically higher education factors prominently in the book, right? He's a well-known political philosopher at Harvard. You know, he's written many, many influential books. So I've followed him for a long time, but you know, this latest one has has caused me to think more about higher education in different ways than I thought about higher education than pretty much anything I've read, right? Which mm -hmm. is, I read a lot, I ingest a lot of stuff, I, I try to look at different angles and different ways of thinking about it. So I, I give it a huge recommendation. Yeah. But, but so that, you know, the tyranny of merit, he starts with the basis that, you know, we and this is very relevant to the election that we're seeing unfold, right? You know, we have a divisive politic in the United States. Uh, there's a lot of issues that are driving that, right? It's not a simple answer to it. But one of the things he points to is that we have really, um, you know, there, there's, a, there's a downside to meritocracy, right? A, mm -hmm. lot, a lot of Americans believe deeply in meritocracy. The question is, do we really have a pure meritocracy? Do we just like to believe there is? He talks about elite college admissions mm -hmm. and the idea that, you know, for example, uh, scores on SAT tests skew heavily towards 
students from the top socioeconomic bracket, right? So right. if you're uh, in the top 1%, you have like a one in five chance of getting a 1400 or higher on the SAT. Mm -hmm. If you're in the bottom quartile, it's like a one in 50 chance, right? So right. like, come on, really? Like, so anyway, he does a great job unpacking this. But what really got my attention was that he talks about uh, what he calls the last acceptable prejudice in America. Mm. And that is the prejudice of the educated versus the uneducated. Wow. And he talks a lot about credentialism right in this. Mm. And so he says, for those who get to the top of this educational meritocracy, right, think mm -hmm. elite university, mm -hmm. they're characterized by students who he calls, um, you know, were, uh, were, were feathered strivers, right? Like mm. to a point where they weren't really focused on learning. It was, I just need to get a good grade. Tell me what right. I need to know that's on the test and everything mm -hmm. else is irrelevant, right? So right. like, mm -hmm. I, you know, and oh, by the way, I don't want to do group projects because I, I just want my grade. Like, right. I don't want, you know, I don't want to be relying on other students and, oh, mm -hmm. you know, there's the, so it's just a fascinating thing to think about. On the other end, right, the people who don't make it to college, right, right. who don't get that precious credential that we've told the country, you know, education for, for everyone, mm -hmm. there's a downside to it, which is, six out of 10 Americans still don't have a college degree, right? right? And so when those with degrees look down upon those without degrees, right, mm -hmm. then it creates this really serious divide. And he points out many examples of the divide, like in the, in the Trump versus uh, Clinton campaign in 2016, one of the biggest dividers was education level, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And so anyway, I, I think that higher education needs to do some careful soul searching, right? Mm -hmm. To say, okay, uh, I've always believed that higher ed is is more of something that contributes to our democracy, right? Helps right. make it thrive and whatever. But he, he makes an argument that especially elite universities, they might actually be part of the problem right now right. because of this, you know, kind of, oh, yeah. you know, looking down upon the uneducated and, right. and like, we can't have that attitude. Like, yes, we'd like to lift people up with education, mm -hmm. but if we if we created this doubt that, like, and I'll give you one simple example, in in the 1960s, which was not that long ago in the grand scheme of things, something like a quarter of everybody in uh, the House of Representatives and in the Senate, a quarter did not have a college degree. Mm -hmm. Today, it's like two members total, right? right? Two who don't have a college degree. Right. And what he makes this point is that the the uh, the, the uneducated, right, the non-credential, meaning no college degree, mm -hmm. are effectively shut out of representation in government mm -hmm. because 60 percent of Americans don't have a college degree, but almost 100 right. percent of elected officials do. Now, on one hand, we could all go, well, yeah, we want people to be educated and smart if they're going to run for, you know, be an elected official. On the other hand, you can't tell me that that from the 60% of people in the U.S. who don't have a, a college degree, that there aren't intelligent, highly right. capable leaders in that category. Mm -hmm. Come on, man, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the military is one of the few places where, you know, you can get ahead in, in mm -hmm. that way, right? I mean, there's there's different options. Actually, the military does provide different options for, for making it in, into leadership positions. So, yeah. But, but I mean, the other thing I would add to what you're talking about is, you know, we have a few other crises that connect to this, right? It's the the crisis of, um, you know, you know, basically debt, student debt, but also the fact that we're not graduating students. Right. I mean, you know, our overall graduation rates, and then if you start looking at, you know, by by race and and so on, and and even that there's the, a growing gender gap, right? Right. 
more women than men and and so on. So I, I think, you know, we need to really take a step back. And I, I have so much to talk yeah. about in this context. But yeah. I mean, I, I do think you're absolutely right. But the other thing I would add is that it's, you know, we perpetuate the system in the way that we train faculty, right? And that faculty are ingrained in graduate school with that this is the way things are done. And, you know, when, the way we teach is we pass down syllabi from, you know, you get your the syllabus from the classes, you, you know, your professor taught and you, you use the same syllabus and, you know, maybe update the, the readings. But, you know, so we have the system that is designed to perpetuate itself. And frankly, you know, I had to I've spent the last few years basically, you know, deprogramming myself <laughs> because I was, you know, I was a part of it. I was a first generation kid who, you know, went to Stanford, you know, I actually worked in between undergrad and grad school, but I, you know, went to grad school at UCLA, realized that to get ahead, I had to jump through all these certain hoops, and, yeah. you know, do, you know and, and I love doing research, don't get me wrong, but that was the focus. And, you know, in my jobs at University of Washington, at University of Texas, you know, I had to do research and teaching took the second seat. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and when I became a provost, at, you know, here at Menlo College, I was, that's when my eyes were opened more. And, and I realized, wow, you know, especially when you're in an institution that has a graduation rate of, you know, maybe 55%, you realize, wait a second, what's right. happening to all these kids? They're leaving here without any kind of credential. Mm -hmm. And, you know, why would they? They they just spent two years or three years, you know, taking all these courses and passing all these courses and doing right. what they needed to yeah. do, and yet they are leaving here without a BA. Yeah. yeah, that was that was one of the things I commented on this article in Forbes. Um, you know that that was about you know we don't value education, we value the credential. Right. You know, if you look at we we all know about the powerful earnings impact of a bachelor's degree, right? You get a bachelor's mm -hmm. degree compared to a high school degree. Right. You know, there's basically a 67% wage premium uh, on an annual basis, right? It's significant. What's interesting, though, is we've got 36 million Americans, Terry, to your point, who have some college but didn't quite get the degree. And in fact, right. in some cases, they've got a full two or three years worth of credits under their belt. So they're, you know, at least half or, or more than halfway to a bachelor's degree. But those who are in that some college, no degree category barely have any wage premium. Right. over those who, who are high school only graduates. Yeah. And so if the education was so valuable, right. theoretically, someone who finished one year of college should make more than someone who finished none. Right. Two years of college should make more. Three years of college, right? Yeah. But we don't see that. So it's an indication, too, that employers on the other end are, mm -hmm. are you know, that the signaling value of a degree is a really right. serious, serious challenge right now. Yeah, and then, also, yeah, good. Right. Well, and then also think about the return on that student's investment, where they're trying to get the degree. They've they've maybe taken on loans or or had to put put their own put their own money out just to pay for their education, and they're they're really not getting any net benefit because they haven't reached that that sort of sheepskin effect stage in their development. Uh, but then. How how would you see the credentialing fit into this equation, uh, Brandon? Like for the some college no degree, how do you sort of decompose the big monolithic degree into something a little more uh, credential based? Well, look, I mean, we're getting there in various ways. You know, more institutions are starting to think about uh, stackable certificate programs into degrees, right? So 
We're not there on a widespread level, but that's happening. You know, the rise of MOOCs, I mean, the way that MOOCs as a business model have started to succeed, and the jury's still ultimately out, but like it's it's not because they've been offering free education, it's because they're now starting to offer certificates for course completion. You can take the course for free, but you've got to pay to actually get the certificate. Mm-hmm. Now they're moving to offering full online degrees on MOOC platforms, right? Uh, stackable credentials that go to degrees or, or you know, micro master's programs. So we're starting to see, you know, a real proliferation of those kinds of, of assets. Like, you know, look, there's a lot of creative ideas, though, that we haven't considered. One of the things I suggest in the article is you could have you could have a credential for every 30 college credits that somebody accrues, right? Mm-hmm. You don't need to call it a degree, right? Uh, you know, give it right. another name, but like somebody could come out and say, okay, we're going to recognize that. You know, you're a, you know, you're a first degree black belt. You're a second degree black belt. Like there's yeah. lots of ways, you know, life scout, Eagle scout, you, you yeah. can come up with ways to tier it, but to recognize those who have substantial college credits, right? To give that some nod, Look, the other thing you're seeing is employers making moves around this. You know, lots of employers who have dropped the required degree for the job. Right. Uh, and then, you, you know, you see the Googles of the world who have come out just yeah. in the last few months and said, hey, here's our IT certificate programs. We're mm-hmm. going to treat them as equivalent to a bachelor's degree mm-hmm. in our hiring process. That's a big statement. Now, it's it's a Google. It's not Google plus 3,000 small and medium-sized businesses yet. But these are all things that I think are moving in, in the right direction, ultimately. And look, it points to there's opportunities for higher ed, and there's also real threats to higher ed, right? Because these Google certificates have nothing yeah. to do with higher ed. Mm-hmm. But in other cases, you know, Google and the Amazons and the Walmarts are partnering with higher ed institutions because they realize they need help with certain things, or it's just right. better to partner with the university than to try and create it themselves. Yes, indeed. But I, I think it's re- that's a really critical point is that, you know, we have all these institutions. OK, so we're in the middle of it was already a crisis before COVID. But, you know, we haven't even mentioned COVID yet. <laughs> that was a record. 18 minutes. Good job. I know. Yeah, yeah. How did we get this far? Right. But um, the other part of the crisis is, is that, you know, basically the crisis in higher ed is being accelerated, that we're going to lose institutions mm-hmm. that aren't able to innovate and create the change that is needed to actually, you know, increase enrollments and so on. You know, I mean, the institu- an institution I was at, you know, we, we actually had a degree completion program, but we, you know, we didn't, you know, pursue it and didn't market it and, and so on. Um, we could have marketed it to our own, you know, people who didn't <laughs> finish their degrees. But the idea was to work with employers. We just didn't have the resources to really, you know, develop it the way we should have. Mm-hmm. Yet, I do think that's the direction institutions need to go, is to say, you know, I mean, reach, especially small privates that are struggling, reach out to the community. There are probably thousands of people wherever you are, who have not completed a degree, who would love to be able to complete a degree, figure, but the other, you know, hurdle to this is we haven't talked about yet is accreditation. Mm-hmm. And if we don't talk about accreditors, we're not going to be able to, to, you know, accreditors have to be, give institutions more flexibility to offer credentials to, you know, be, be, to accept, um, you know, external, you know, credit from other institutions, all these things, you know, it, it's, it's the one thing I agree with, with, you know, the GOP on education is that we need to ease up on some of the regulation because it's stifling the ability of institutions to innovate and actually provide different options uh, for uh, education, period. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm hopeful there's, uh, I mean, there, there are signs of, um, let's say, more openness to innovation from the creditors, mainly driven by the pandemic, right? And, you know, acceptance of online, you know, programs and different formats and stuff like that. So, so there's that encouragement, right? Like how far it goes, right? How open it is. That's still obviously TBD. But another way to think about it, Terry, is I've, I've said many times that the, the kind of the, the center of education is shifting towards employers, right? Mm-hmm. And this isn't, you know, this isn't going to happen entirely, right? But, but here's my point, you know, accreditors have really been the arbiters of quality for higher education. There's other ways to measure quality. One would just be a student goes to your university and says, I would pay every penny for that again. They tell all their friends to go there. The experience was just so amazing that the consumer, I'll call them the consumer, they're a student or, or a grad, validates it, right? The, the other thing is an employer comes and says, hey, I tell you what, university, I don't want your degree, but could you take a six-week version of that cybersecurity program yep. and just give me that for my employees so they can get through the CISSP exam? Mm-hmm. And the university goes, yeah, sure. And they get paid to do that. Now, that is a different arbiter of quality. That's, a, that's an employer saying, I will pay for that, right? Could you please do that? It's a derivative of a degree. This is a real life example, by the way, that I've been involved with. And so, you know, you say, okay, well, then are employers a new form of a creditor? Sure. In that case, they are, right? Like not in the in the same exact way that accrediting is set up, but like that employers are starting to become their own form of a creditor. And I think every university needs to think about what that might mean in terms of opportunities for innovation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, and maybe just building on the idea of the pandemic, since we just talked about it, uh, a topic we've discussed a bit on uh, this program, and also I've talked about it a lot on uh, my podcast, uh, Education, is the idea of the gap year and the gap year in light of the, the pandemic, if there ever were a year to take a gap year, <laughs> perhaps this year was the year or is the year. So uh, I know both of you have thought about that. Uh, Brandon, uh, in particular, I'd love to hear some of your perspective because I think there's some programs, I've seen you write about it, uh, but any perspective you might have on, you know, just a gap year in general and then mapping that against the particular exigencies of the year that we're in right now, I'd love to get some of your perspective on that. Yeah, it's tricky because uh, first of all, I. I hate the term and how most people think about it, right? It's like soft skills versus hard skills. Mm-hmm. You know, a gap year, it, you know, it sounds like it's a year off, right? And, and a lot of people, by the way, uh, you know, it's, it's for, they, they believe and, and some of the data shows that it's for students who have the luxury of being able to afford to take a travel year or, right. mm-hmm. you know, do something for, that said, that said, the opportunity to get a better sense of what you want to do, the things right. you're interested in, what you don't like to do, like that, that's a bonus, right? Like, oh, I know I don't really like that anymore. There's a lot of value to that as young people are thinking about entering into college. What do I want to major in, right? Heading into college with no idea about what you want to do, right? Uncertain about any kind of career choices. Like, I, I think that's dangerous, especially if you are going into debt to do that, right? right. Paying a lot of money to do that. Um, and so, you know, the value, what I think we need to do is we need to kind of uh, come up with a different name, shift the mindset around how we think about a gap year. Mm-hmm. The big gap that we really have is in the work readiness of students at all levels in right. K-12 and in higher ed. That is the gap we have, right? So let's fill in that gap 
with things that allow students to more broadly explore different careers, get a sense of what people do in jobs, because the reality is for a young person, they're incredibly limited in their thinking about the different kinds of jobs and careers that exist in the world, right? They think about what their parents or uncle or brother or sister have done, but like, you know, beyond that, it's not, you know, it's not an expansive thing. And especially, you know, students who are um, in first generation, you know, first generation students, right? Yeah. Where, you know, there, there's a narrow set of thinking around that or exposure to it. Like, wh- what does it mean to be an accountant? What does it mean like, t- t- well, by the way, there's a lots of different types of accountants, right? So, so, so the, the program that we worked on launching, and this was in the works eight months pre-pandemic, I mean, it was mm-hmm. well before uh, pandemic was, you know, basically a, uh, an acceleration program around career exposure. Students get to kind of have a broad set of understanding. They actually interview people that are in different jobs across different types of industries. They do multiple work integrated learning projects with different employers. So it's not just one internship with one, Mm -hmm. but it's multiple projects with multiple employers, right? Where they get a sense of like, yeah, that one was really interesting. That one, not so much. And then they get feedback on it because that's the other part where we've fallen down on things like internships and Mm -hmm. co-ops. You know, if you have a great manager that you work for and they give you lots of feedback and it's helpful, great. But a lot of us who did internships, it was like, yeah. Photocopy these papers, you know, <laughs> grab the coffee and donuts. I mean, yeah, okay, yeah. I saw a workplace, but I didn't really get integrated. In it. So I got, I got feedback on my how my coffee tasted, perhaps, or that's right. uh, or, or whether I was buying the right kind of donuts. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we've got a long way to go. And I think my biggest issue is that we have massive equity and access gaps on that work readiness front, right? So yeah. if I have social capital. I connect with my parents, friends who have an internship or I do yep. an internship at my dad's firm or whatever mm-hmm. it might be, right? And Or I can do an unpaid internship or a volunteer experience because I can afford not to get paid. For everybody else, forget about it, right? Okay. So we need to find ways to scale these work experiences, right? And they can come in any form, an externship, an internship, a co-op, a micro internship, right? I'd take it in any form, mm-hmm. but but unfortunately, it's only happening for about a third of college graduates nationally mm-hmm. who are hitting the mark on some of the key indicators of what I would call work integrated learning as part of their high school or college experience. Yeah. And then how, for both of you, maybe starting with you, Terry, and then I'd love to hear from Brandon about this as well. Uh, how do you break through to start transforming the model? Like it, it does, like we're observing changes and ideally saying, Good job by Western governors. ASU is doing some interesting stuff. Uh, it sounds like some of the programs that that Brandon was describing that he's doing at Kaplan are, are maybe starting to move the needle. I know that's something you're working on, but but where's the resistance and and how do we break through? Uh, and then are there again, you know, I'm now beating the pandemic uh, drum pretty hard here, but like also are there new opportunities that are emerging because this year is so uh, disruptive and transformational? I'd, I'd love to hear from both of you, but maybe starting with you, Terry, on this. Yeah, sure. I think that um, leaders are starting to see the light, I hope. Yeah, they, I think the initial is- issue has just been, okay, we got to get online and we got to make sure our students are safe, whether they're on campus or not. And, you know, the interesting thing is, uh, which people aren't really paying attention to, is how many institutions out there are having, you know, it's not necessarily full-on face-to-face, but hybrid that mm-hmm. are actually being successful and um, at doing that. Um, and what we're learning, 
the thing that happen, is happening right now is the learning process that yes, we can be online and yes, we can do hybrid. It's hard on the faculty and the students, but it can be done. Mm -hmm. And so the next step is figuring is you know, dealing with the financial aspects of the crisis. And that's right. where we're going to see the innovation. Um, right now, it's just, you know, everybody's trying to play catch up. The innovation is going to come in when they start to realize, okay, we can't afford to, you know, maintain right. this resident, you know, residences, you know, mm -hmm. all of this. Uh, and and yeah, I've been seeing some interesting articles about this because, you know, the, the focus has really been on a lot on the student experience. So when you go to the, you know, I, I just, I have one son who just started college a year, you know, a year ago and another who's going to be, we're looking at a gap year for him, even though he's just a junior, because yeah. I don't think things are going to change that quickly. But, you know, that we're in a situation where people are starting to rethink what college means to them. And that's where I think it's going to be yeah. a demand situation. It's going to be people saying, that, you know, yeah, I don't care about the climbing wall and even sports. I mean, you know, we were both D1 athletes, but, you know, I think sports is going to go by the wayside in terms of being something that is the folk central focus. And because people are going to, you know, I think all sports should shift to club sports. If you want to run track, great. But the, you know, if you're of that caliber, the U.S. Olympic team should be paying for it, not my mm -hmm. university. Mm -hmm. If you're playing football, the NFL should be paying for it. And basketball, the NBA. You know, otherwise it's just club sports. If you pay to play, <laughs> you know, you want to play right. lacrosse. You know, there's no professional teams. Anyway, so my point just being that we're going. We're, that shift is going to happen. It has to. Mm -hmm. There's just no way that basically the NCAA and all the infrastructure for sports is going to collapse mm -hmm. um, because it just is unsustainable. And the other component that's going to collapse is this idea that we can keep pouring money into things that aren't central to education. And it frustrates yeah. me to see that so many institutions are just doing across the board cuts. It's like no, protect your faculty. That mm. is your goal. Mm -hmm. If you aren't protecting your faculty, then you might as well quit the game. Yeah. <laughs> so Good. that's what's end. You also have to get your faculty focused on teaching. <laughs> you know, that's the other main component is, yes, research is important. And, you know, there's some institutions that can afford to do that. But if you aren't a Stanford or a Harvard or Yale or Princeton, you better start thinking about making sure your faculty can teach because right. that's got to be the focus. And mm -hmm. yes, let them do research, but, and then graduate school is going to have to change. So it's going to push its way down. The leadership has to realize that all these changes are going to have to happen. The faculty have to understand that teaching is going to have to be their number one thing. And then graduate school is going to have to train faculty to be teachers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, look, there's, you know, Terry, you're making a lot of good points. I mean, there, there are financial pressures galore, right? And I actually, it's, it's, it's going to be worse next year than it is this year, Absolutely. right? Mm -hmm. 100%. You know, you, you're kind of running on fumes now, right? But as you kind of forecast in next year, it's like, oh, wait a minute, you know, right. we see enrollments just roaring back and we're being flush with students. Mm -hmm. No, I don't see any evidence of that, right? right. And, you know, uh, I don't see, you know, I didn't pre-pandemic see many efforts by college leaders to actually sincerely work on reducing the cost of education. Mm -hmm. we've, we've, we've advocated for more financial aid, but that's very different than working to reduce the cost of education. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And here's the challenges for as much as people can complain about the administrative bloat or expenditures on buildings and grounds yeah. and things like athletics and stuff, all legitimate, right? Like all areas that you know, we could make some headway in reducing the cost. 
the reality with institutions and, and almost every education institution I've ever been familiar with is the majority of the costs are in the people, mm -hmm. right? And specifically the higher paid people, which are the faculty relative to many of the other staff, right? So administration, top administration, certainly highest paid faculty, especially tenured faculty right up there. So, you know, we've got real issues and, and you know, I think what's going to happen, there's going to be there's going to be two types of leaders that emerge in this, right? They're going to be the leaders of institutions. I mean, I, I call them the survivalists and the opportunists. Mm. They're both going to be entrepreneurial, right? Because mm -hmm. they, they, you know, they're, they're, there's this era of innovation, I think, that's just starting to crack open in higher ed. And I'm very yeah. excited about it. But the, the survivalists are the ones who are at institutions that were already in pretty serious trouble, now facing even more financial headwinds. Mm -hmm. with no visibility to relief, right? Like it's like a bridge to what? Well, you know, if there isn't a bridge, right. then what what's our viable plan? If we don't have a viable future in front of us, it becomes really difficult. And so yeah, yeah. what I think is gonna happen is that this is just my my high level guess. One out of ten survivalists are gonna be successful. In other mm -hmm. words, the you know, the ones that were already struggling, you know, no matter how entrepreneurial they try to be, it's gonna be like a venture capital. Yeah. One out of 10 are going to turn out like, you know, a good example 10 years ago would have been Southern New Hampshire University, right? Mm -hmm. It was an institution that hardly anybody had heard of. It wasn't on the map. It wasn't doing very well. And a Paul LeBlanc came along. And now it's one of the largest universities in the world, right? And so so Paul, in that example, would be my, my survivalist example. One in 10 are going to make it. What I'm more optimistic about are the opportunist entrepreneurs in higher ed universities that are in an okay or good condition now. Mm -hmm. who then have a leader, a board, a, a senior admin, you know, senior administrative team that thinks about all the opportunities out there. They're looking on the horizon, not just trying to you know deal with the issues of the day. Like they're they're looking out in the horizon. They're like an ASU, right? They're like a Purdue. There, I mean, there's a lot of institutions, but those have been very very visible ones because of a. Michael Crow and a Mitch Daniels, right? But right. Uh, start looking at places like University of Montana. Why? Oh, President yeah. Seth Bodner, right? You look at uh, a Lynn University. Why? President Kevin Ross. I mean, there's there's all kinds of these opportunist innovators out there. And I think nine out of the 10 opportunists are going to be successful. <laughs> so I see bright spots in higher ed. I see some real scary places. But, you know, this era of entrepreneurship, I think, is real. And it even boils down to entrepreneurship in the classroom, Terry. You know, talk yeah. about faculty. I was amazed, like the, the most the most viewed post I've ever had on LinkedIn by a, a substantial margin was about how faculty are driving disruption in higher ed. Mm -hmm. And people think like usually mm -hmm. the thought is, right, the current narrative is like, oh, faculty, the ones holding back innovation in higher ed. Actually, mm -hmm. I'm sure there are some faculty who sure. are in that category, but you look at you know, innovations and across history in higher ed, faculty have been the big innovators. I mean, all the major MOOCs were started by faculty, mm -hmm. right? Like University of Phoenix was started by a faculty member at, at, at uh, Santa Clara University, right? So like, you know, there, there's this history of it. And, but I see it now at a micro level in the classroom where because we've been forced into this pandemic condition, faculty and the students are with them are thinking about all kinds of new pedagogies. Yep educational strategies, right? And I'm hopeful that a lot comes out of that where we never return to the old normal. We create a new, we create a new higher education in the United States. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then in the case of the workforce side of this, then um, how, because that, that's a space that you've been focused on for a little time now, Brandon, like how do you make the connection between trends in the, the, the workforce with learning and talent space and then mapping them back to higher ed? Because it seems like a lot of it is really a mapping, like it's almost like the solution exists within higher ed. They just haven't necessarily been able to translate that into opportunities or connections that make sense on the, the workforce side. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, there's a lot going on there. There's a, uh, you know, those of you who've been following the data, these are some of my favorite stats that I continue to cite, cited when I worked on the research at Gallup. But, you know, if you survey U.S. adults, general population, you survey trustees of college and universities, C-level business executives, all of them are incredibly negative about the work readiness of college grads. It's like 13%, 11%, 6% strongly agree that graduates are well prepared for success in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Provosts, on the other hand, yeah, about 95% say their institutions are doing either a great job or, or a decent job on the work readiness of college grads. Here's my point about that. There's obviously some perception issues there, like there's some language barriers, like mm -hmm. the provost definition of critical thinking is different than a C-level executive's definition of critical thinking. Like there's some fascinating things to unplug there. Mm -hmm. There's obviously some real gaps there, right, between what others are viewing about higher ed and what the insiders at the core of higher ed, the academic leaders, are viewing as what's happening there. So if you put that aside, though, right, you say, where are we heading? We're I'll use the expression hurling towards because we're moving there quickly. An era where think about some basic things, right? We are we're now closer to 2050 than 1990. Part, you know, like yep. you're good with the math, Mike. So you probably, you know, you I, I had to sit down and like, is yeah. that really true? Right. Yeah. Carefully did it. But um, you, you know, now what, what why does that matter? Because in 2050, the average age of a female in the United States is going to be 95 years and a male is going to be 90 which means that the average age of retirement in the workplace is going to push up at least a decade or more, yeah. right? And so this idea, now on top of it, let me throw another stat. In the last five years, the average time employers report needing to upskill or reskill an employee has jumped from three days to 36 days mm -hmm. in just five years time. Right. So, okay, put those things together, you know, lifelong learning, this thing we've always talked about, hoped for, held yep. up as an ideal, right, but never honestly really delivered on or can't measure. Mm -hmm. Lifelong learning is going to become not just a nice to have and, a, and, a, and, a, and an ambition, it's going to become a requirement. Right. And there are those of us who naturally are predisposed to being good learners, right? Like we just were voracious readers. We like mm -hmm. it. And there's others who, quite frankly, like, it's like, it's intimidating, it's scary, it's, it's not enjoyable, but the reality is, whether we like it or not, we're not gonna have a choice. Now, this forces employers to think very differently and it forces universities to think differently. So the reason why I'm hopeful is that both of those institutions are thrust into the same exact problem. How do we remain relevant and how do we keep human beings relevant, right. not just by giving them a four-year degree and hoping the next 40 years of their career works out, mm -hmm. right? But, but you know, and, and so what that means is we're gonna have to have things that are not degrees. We're gonna have to have things that stack to degrees. Yep. We're gonna have to value, uh, you know, short-term things. So like what are employers valuing a lot lately? Intensive boot camp type programs. Right. 
Well, why shouldn't universities be in that business, right? They can, they are, uh, they could be more. And, um, and so, you know, I, I'm hopeful that I see the pioneering institutions going in that direction. My, my concern is how long does it take the, the, you know, the middle of the marketplace and the laggards to catch up? Right. The laggards are probably never going to get there. But my hope is that at least, you know, two thirds of higher ed will shift into that kind of a position quickly because that's where we need to go. Right. Well, yeah, I agree. That's a way to expand. I mean, a lot of our smaller private institutions, you know, could easily expand into some of these areas because they don't have a lot of the restrictions that the public institutions have. Right. And, you know, they, they don't. So and, you know, you look at the state of California where I am. I mean, you know, the, the UCs and the Cal States are overflowing with students. And yet they, we have small privates that are tr struggling to survive. I mean, right. they need to, re you, I come back to the comment you made about cost, right? right? We need to figure out how to reduce costs and also get students to a degree faster, forget summer, just have an ongoing school year where you, you, know, you basically get through. Um, and, you know, there's a, a co some comments about how we um, do the vocational component of it. I mean, I first of all, we need to offer more vocational education. But, I mean, you know, they used to do that in high school and, and we don't do it anymore. Um, you know, it, it, and again, I do think we need to get away from the idea that everybody should have access to a four year degree because not, you know, not everybody wants that or needs right. that. And um, I, I do think that, though, there's a space for you know, a lot of institutions to survive all of this by off, you know, be doing more to offer what students and employers need. It's like, you know, we're, we're in between the, what the student needs and the employer needs. And we need to come into that space and say, yes, we are going to do this. And we're going to work with, you know, local employers and, and you know, everybody to figure this out. Yeah. Yeah. It also seems like the the market opportunity is really expanding your focus beyond, you know, the four or five years right out of high school on the higher ed side and instead think in the entirety of that lifelong learning opportunity that you're talking about, Brandon, where can higher ed pop in there and be opportunistic? And then I think that will tie back to something I've seen you talk about, uh, Terry, which is the, the idea of being agile. Mm -hmm. And uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I've seen you uh, you know, write a little bit about that. And then Brandon, I'm sure you could bring in some additional uh, thinking about that where you know, if you're opportunistic, like how, what kind of mindset do you need? How is that different from maybe traditional thinking within higher ed? I'd love to hear both of you talk a little more about that. Yeah, I've been working with some folks. I mean, one of the things we're trying to do is get small private institutions to consider collaborations, mergers, et cetera. And it comes back to this idea of how do we plan for all of that? How do we structure that? And I, I really have enjoyed working with some folks who are, do this agile training, um, which basically, it allows for a more, um, you know, agile, but innovative approach. I mean, it, it, to me, it, it's a lot like design thinking. So I, I really got into design thinking. I'm right next door to Stanford that has a mm -hmm. school and all that. And, you know, it's basically taking a step back and being willing to deconstruct things in a way that allows you to say, okay, instead of being stuck in, in this mindset of this is the way we've always done things and also bringing in all the stakeholders, everybody from students to faculty to you know administrators, where everybody sits down at the table and says, okay, you know, try things, experiment. And if it doesn't work, you go back and try again. <laughs> and we you know we're so risk averse. I mean, one of the biggest problems in higher ed mm. is that we're risk averse. And it's not about taking on risk. It's about 
doing what's best for our students. And if, you know, that has to, and part of it is defining that mission, because if we come at this as doing what's best for our students, then everything else comes into alignment around that mission. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we need to think through, you know, how do we reduce costs in a way that still gets our students a quality education and prepares them for work? And, and that means sitting down with your staff and your faculty and saying, how do we do this? Yeah, I think, you know, look, there's, uh, you know, encouraging an institution like higher education to be agile and use design thinking. I'm all in, right? Yeah. It also comes with the historical challenges of, you know, death by committee. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like, you know, the point you made, Terry, about being risk averse, right? And I'm, I'm reminded of a, of a quote, I, I'm not going to have it exactly right, right? But it's a, and then the time came when the risk of remaining tight in a bud became greater than the risk of blossoming, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, mm -hmm. and I think that's where higher ed is now, right? Like, I'm sorry, it's riskier to stand packed yes. than it is to go and innovate. And yeah. so we're finally getting to that level. And I think that what we need to do though, is institutions need to make innovation intentional, not accidental. So some of the examples I've been inspired by are like, I'll, I'll, I'll give you examples. Uh, Wake Forest and Babson both have admin, uh, cabinet level roles, VPs of innovation. Mm -hmm. This isn't like research and tech transfer. This is different. They're, they're VPs who are looking at all the innovative mm -hmm. potential angles that the university might be considering. And then Wake Forest has even done something uh, on top of that. They established a standing committee of their board of trustees that's an innovation committee mm -hmm. on their board, right? Now, so here's the simple point. It's intentional there, right? There's mm -hmm. a cabinet level position dedicated to it. There's a board of trustees standing committee dedicated to it. And things are happening there. No surprise, right? I would argue that Michael Crow made innovation intentional yes. at Arizona State, not accidental, right? Right, right. And so that's what we need to do. That's what we have yeah. to do. I mean, Michael Crow created a whole infrastructure around it. I mean, he's got an entire staff that's out there that's not faculty that's just focused on innovation. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the 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 you know the extreme end of it. But you know, yeah. I, but I've also seen it go wrong. You know, I, I I have to look back at you know there's a famous case where I was University of Texas at Austin of them trying to to do some major innovations and it, you know it I mean it wasn't set up properly. There was all kinds of issues with it, but you know spent millions of dollars and, right. and got nothing out of it. Um. So I think we have to be very careful. And, and but I, I really like the, the word intentionality, because if we if we're intentional and are saying, yes, this is you know what we want to do and we're going to put res real resources and thought towards it, not just run headstrong. I and mean, there, there's you know, it's finding that balance. You don't want to have death by committee, but you also don't want to run headstrong into changes that aren't carefully thought through. Yeah. So. Um, you know, I think it has to be, you have to find that balance and that takes leadership, you know, right. and it comes, it always comes back to leadership because people have to feel like they're supported. They have to feel like they have the resources they need. I mean, I'm doing a lot of this work right now where I'm, you know, helping, you know, both higher ed and, and private companies, you know, try to understand how to, to, you know, you know, keep morale up, you know, make sure people have buy-in all of those kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. Culture, uh, culture stuff. And then, uh, 
We are getting close to uh, to time. We got about 15, 13 minutes left. So uh, I'd like both of you to to maybe put your uh, the equivalent of your Swami Swami hats on, uh, your crystal balls, uh, if you will, uh, just to try to look ahead uh, both into the near term, you know, like the rest of this year into the spring, like this this academic year. Uh, but then also maybe looking a little bit further out on the horizon, uh, particularly being strategic about where the world may head and what kind of trends you're seeing out there. Um, you know, I think it's a time to be both somewhat tactical in your windows just because you have to, because things are so difficult. A lot of hard decisions are being accelerated, but then you do want to have a North Star. You do want to have some sense of where where you think things may be heading. Um, so, uh, so Brandon, maybe just to kick off with, with you, I'd love to hear some perspective from you on the trends you're tracking maybe over a longer horizon, like say like a three to five year horizon. And then uh, what kind of what kind of decisions need to be made in the short term to kind of get through maybe the next year or so? Well, there's a lot in there to unpack. I mean, maybe I'll highlight a couple of things that in a way we've touched upon, but I'll expand it. You know, Terry mentioned the academic calendar. And I, I think the traditional academic calendar is officially being thrown out the window, right? You know, mm -hmm. the fact that we've had an education calendar that has moved around an agrarian <laughs> system, right? Uh, and hasn't been updated. Like we, we know, for example, in K-12, that summer is one of the biggest drivers of gaps between students from underserved communities and those from wealthy communities because they just have summer melt, right? Because we right. have so much time off in the summer. And yeah. And it you doesn't know. work for working families. <laughs> no, right. And and so, you know, to, to like, why aren't we in year round school? You can still have little breaks in there. You could take a one week break every quarter. You could do. But like, you know, in, in higher ed, I think a lot of people made adjustments to their calendar because of the pandemic. Most of the leaders I'm talking with don't want to go back to the old calendar. Right. Mm -hmm. And now they're starting to say, hey, we should just do it year round. Right. So instead of measuring six year graduation rates for bachelor's degrees, why shouldn't we be measuring three-year graduation rates for bachelor's degrees? Because quite mm -hmm. frankly, that is something yeah. that the marketplace wants, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, more efficient, faster pathways to a degree. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I use this stat all the time. A place like Western Governors, their average time to a bachelor's degree is 2.6 years. Wow. Why, you know, so as we're tracking six-year graduation rates on the other end, Let's incentivize universities by tracking three-year bachelor degree, uh, you know, and, and what would that involve? Sure, some in-person classes, some online classes. I can supplement online classes when I can't get into a section that's full for an in-person course, right? Which is one of the reasons why students end up extending graduation times because they, they couldn't get a, a required course because it was full and they had to wait the next semester and all that kind of crap that goes on, right? And um the other thing that's obvious, too, and, and uh, you know, there's been a mixed set of predictions around this, like some are saying, oh, we're going to value the in-person education even more because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Maybe sort of. But the net of this is going to be more acceptance of online and it's going to be in hybrid. Right. Yep. So even think of your traditional 18 year old who wants the on campus experience, wants to live in a residence hall. Well, guess what? They might be able to spend a semester working in San Francisco their universities on the East Coast, but they can still do online classes while right. they're working in San Francisco for a semester, mm -hmm. stay on time to graduate, get a valuable work experience, right? And, you know, hey, that's going to be something that they have available now because there's going to be more universities offering available menus for ground students and fully online students. So 
you know, that that I think is being accelerated orders of magnitude. And if you were to say, you know, from a faculty perspective, a year ago, if we'd been having this chat, right, we'd poll everybody in this group and say, what year do you think it will be when all faculty have had an experience teaching online? Right. The answer would have been somewhere like 2050 to never, <laughs> right? right? Mm-hmm. And and guess what? Uh, nine months into this pandemic, yeah. it's 100%. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, not all of them have had a great experience, but many more have warmed up to that experience. They've opened their yeah. mind to that experience. And a lot of them, by the way, have found great advantages from that. And mm-hmm. I'll just use one example from one of my former professors and mentors. He's in his mid-70s. And... He's excited about teaching online right now because he's inviting alumni into his classes. Yep. And before he would bring like one guest lecturer into class, but of course you had to schedule it. They had to, you know, many of them had to fly to the campus to do it, you know. But now he's inviting multiple alumni into classes and the engagement of the conversation between the undergrads and the alumni yeah. is just off the charts. So here's a simple question like why haven't we always invited lum- alumni right. into our classrooms? Like, wh- why haven't we done that? Like, mm-hmm. what the heck? <laughs> right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've been saying the exact same thing, Brandon. Yeah, it's like, why can't I go? You know, I'm living, you know, there's tons of Stanford and Berkeley alumni around here, you know. Uh, why wouldn't Berkeley invite their alumni to come back and sit in classes? Why can't I go and sit in the class on entrepreneurship at Stanford? You know, mm-hmm. there should be no barriers to that. Um, yeah. And you know, the problem, yeah, right. exactly, exactly. Why shouldn't I? I mean, there's no cost to that if you just add a, a you know a camera in the classroom and I can sit right. in and listen to some lectures. Yeah. But you know, I'm gonna I have to talk about diversity because I, yeah. I think you know that is the area that's my one of my big topics. And actually, I'm gonna I, I'm putting in the um the the chat. I'm doing a, a workshop in a couple of weeks on radical empathy, which is based on my book. But I do think this idea of leaders, you know, being able to step in and understand this idea of, of you know, how we can change our approach to diversity is going to be a big one. Um, and because diversity is our future, regardless of what happened in the election, you know, the, the reality is that we need to be able to train those, you know, you look at the states like California and Texas, we have to be able, and, you know, anyway, I could talk about lots of states, but um, we have to be able to train those students. And that's, it's K through 12, it's, it, you know, it's K through 20. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's not just any um, you know, approach. It has to be, again, I'm going to come back to this issue of intentionality. If we want to be, have this diverse student body and have equity and inclusion, we have to be intentional. Mm-hmm. About it. And yep. it starts right here. Every right. single, you know, leader needs to understand what it is takes for them as an individual to address this issue. Yeah. And then that the, the other things follow, right? Because then you, you know, as you change your approach to dealing with diverse students, that will, you know, it ties into all these other things we've been talking about. Yeah. And um, you know, and gets us away from this reliance on standardized tests. And and you know, I think every college that is not, you know, look, the elites are always going to be the way they're going to be. But every college that is reliant on tuition and and you know st- enrollment and all of that 
has to rethink how they are getting those students and what they're giving to those students and how they're making sure that they get some kind of credential. It doesn't have to be a BA before they leave mm-hmm. and that they are always welcome to come back. I mean, I hate this thing as like, oh, you've been gone too long, you know? Oh my God, I went through this as a provost where, you know, I would have students come back and say, oh, I wanna finish my degree. I'm only, you know, 10 credits away. Oh, sorry, you have to retake this class and this class because, you know, we don't offer that anymore or something like that. I mean, that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. At any point in time, I should be able, and, you know, some of it has to do with, you know, changing catalogs and all that. Don't get me started. But I should be able to welcome back a student who, you know, got, you know, three years, 10 years of, you know, training 10 years ago and say, okay, here's here's all the classes you need to finish your degree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, and that should be, or guess what? You can sit in online and right. take this class. Yeah. Or, or, or give, area. yeah. Or, or get credit for work experience or get credit yes. for, for military service or, or yes. whatever other scenarios that are out there. And then, and actually on the diversity topic, Brandon, like it is something, you know, I, I've also worked in the private sector and on the workforce side. I think there's a really been an awakening on that side too. So like without, the training programs that can be implemented on the enterprise side or on the uh, learning and talent, I think are the, those same types of programs, like the stuff you're doing, Terry, can then be applied to um, to higher ed to you know train the administrators, train faculty on how to be sensitive to just the complexities of this year. Uh, any perspective on on the diversity topic or any of the things we were just talking about, Brandon? Yeah, I mean, several things. Look, we, we already brought it up in the context of this work readiness issue and talking about the equity and access problems with, you know, social capital connected to internship opportunities, jobs, right. unpaid work, right? Volunteer or, you know, unpaid internships. Like we've got major, major gaps there. And look, higher ed is still failing miserably on this, right? You know, we in, in a half a century, 50 years, right? Uh, the percentage of students born into the bottom quartile socioeconomic in the United States that graduate from college has gone from 6% to 9% mm-hmm. in half a century, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, now look, there are certain colleges that are doing far better on that, but that's our national report card yeah. of American higher education. And it is disgraceful. There's no other way to say it. So, and I have to say, Terry, you know, I'm uh, full disclosure, I graduated from a highly ranked university. Uh, However, you know, I think elite universities are becoming increasingly less relevant by the day. One, they only educate a sliver of the graduates in the United States. They're not growing enrollments. I mean, most of them have had the same fixed number of graduates for decades now. They're also not contributing to this equity and access agenda in any way that's moving the needle. Like mm-hmm. I just did some of this uh, this work. You know, 10 to 15% of students in the Ivy League are first-gen students. I mean, yeah. it, you know, and nationally, it's like it's like half right now, right? So, you know, co- like, come on, right? Yeah. So, so the elites, you know, you say they're always going to stay the way they are. Like, I, I actually believe that. And I think by doing that, they're going to become less relevant in this conversation. Mm. And it might actually leave the rest of higher education an opportunity to, to go do something about this. Now, here's where I get a little hopeful, right? We, we all, and I say we, I mean across higher ed and into employment, have a, a poor record on improving the diversity talent pipeline. Every Fortune 500 CEO I've had a chance to talk with in the last 18 months yeah. 
is, is admits that their organization is not doing a good job on diversity talent pipeline initiatives. And they're starting to realize that if they simply recruit from colleges and universities, they will never ever improve it, right? So they're now starting to look at taking talent directly out of high school into jobs where they can grow that talent, maybe offer a college degree if they work there, right? So I, for example, I could, as an 18 year old, I could get a job at Papa John's right now delivering pizza. Doesn't sound like the greatest job in the world. By the way, a lot of college students deliver pizza in college to make ends meet, right? Mm-hmm. And, and if I've worked there 90 days, I can get my college degree paid for by Papa John's. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, that's not for everybody, but I got to tell you, if you can't yeah. afford college, you're looking for a way to do it inexpensively, that's a route. I mean, same thing is true at a Walmart, a Discover Financial Services, a Disney, a Starbucks, right? Yeah. So, so I'm a big fan of these opportunities where employers are building this because I do believe employers have a real, at least the innovative ones, the large employers are starting to make bigger intentional commitments to diversity. But I think, look, here's an honest thing that we're going to have to grapple with. And I'll say this as a white man, white men and white women need to care more about the success of black men and brown men and black women and brown women. Until we get to that place, right, we are still going to be greatly hampered. And so what does that mean? It means we have to let go of certain things. We have to acknowledge the privilege and advantages. Even if I view myself as a hard worker and deserving of some of the accolades, I still have to look back and recognize that I have had benefits and advantages that others have not. And I need to be aware of that, right? To have zero awareness of that is the beginning of, of, of our problems, right? So right. we've got a lot of work to do there. I can't begin to suggest all the ways we get there, but it does have to be intentional. We're far from where we need to be. And it's incumbent upon, especially especially white Americans, to care more about the success of everybody else, not just their own individual success. Well, that was a good, uh, good question. Got us to 401. The time has flown. We have... Uh... We have given folks a diversion from watching election returns. So, so thank you, thank you so much for everyone who has attended. Any, uh, any final thoughts? We're we're just at, we're at the hour right now, so we do want to wrap up. Brandon, thank you so much for joining us. Really amazing stuff. We'd love to have you back again. You handled the the rapid fire improv flow here uh, wonderfully. So, so thank you uh, for that. Any any final thoughts from either of you before we wrap up here? No, I would just, I really appreciate the, you know, the, those last comments. Just check it, check us out. We have a lot to offer to help people make this transition and we look forward to seeing you next week. Awesome. Thanks everybody. Yeah, great talking to both of you. Thanks everybody for joining. It's always fun. Have Thanks a good one. Yeah. Take care.